it's really becoming your own best friend and learning to meet those places of pain and fear jealousy disappointment and the, the whole range of human emotions with a different mindset welcome to perennials a podcast about growing up getting wise and trying to live a good life i'm victoria russell i'm going to be having conversations about what it means to truly grow up mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Conversations about what it means to live intentionally while making mistakes and trying new things and forming identities and building containers for our lives. I wanna talk about not just how to check off boxes like school, job, partner, house, marriage, kids, but the stuff in between and underneath those boxes, the questions that keep us up at night and that maybe we don't feel comfortable sharing with people because we think we're the only ones who don't have it figured out, but we're not. (laughs) So I'm going to be talking to people that have some wisdom to share, and hopefully some of that wisdom will rub off on me and on you too. Today, I'm going to be talking about anxiety. So um, I lit some candles, I'm feeling cozy, I'm feeling ready to talk about anxiety. And there's no one I would rather talk about it with than today's guest, Cheryl Paul. Cheryl is a psychotherapist and life coach based in Boulder, Colorado, who specializes in anxiety and transitions. She's guided thousands of people worldwide through her coaching practice, her best-selling books, her home study programs, and her blog. She has appeared several times on The Oprah Winfrey Show, as well as Good Morning America and other top media shows and publications around the globe. She also happens to be my aunt. (laughs) So I've had the good fortune of having her to help guide me through transitions in my life and my struggles with anxiety. Of course, everyone's different, so it's important for anyone struggling with mental health to find a licensed professional who will help you determine the treatment that's best for you conversation we're going to have today is just one little slice, one perspective on a big topic, but I think it's a perspective that we don't hear that often and that's special and has helped a lot of people. So I'm really excited to share the conversation and I hope you find it as helpful as I found all of Cheryl's work. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So happy to be here. It's good to hear your voice. (laughs) You too. Um, I wanted to start by first just kind of defining anxiety as you define it, because you define it differently from the dominant cultural (laughs) definition, right? Yes. So I have a traditional definition that I think is helpful for people just to place anxiety in context. Um, and then I have more my understanding of it. So this is my definition from my book, um, that will be out June, 2019, the wisdom of anxiety. So this is right from the book. Anxiety is a feeling of dread, agitation, or foreboding associated with a danger that does not exist in the present moment. It can also be defined as a general and pervasive sense of dis-ease without an identified source. Anxiety, while often experienced in the body, is a head state that keeps its prisoners trapped in the realm of unproductive and fear-based thinking. Anxiety keeps you on high alert, and at its core lives the belief that you're not okay, that you'll never be okay, and that you're not safe physically, emotionally, and or spiritually. 
anxiety and trust are mutually exclusive. That reigns very true for me. <laughs> yes. It sounds yes. familiar. Yes. All, all familiar words and territory for those who deal with anxiety. And for those who don't, it's like, what? <laughs> it's almost like just two different wirings. Um, but this anxious personality type that I prefer to think of as the sensitive personality type where the sensitivity hasn't necessarily been honored in a way that would allow the sensitivity to be channeled into more creative and spiritual expression when we're young. Instead, the anxiety morphs, the sensitivity morphs into anxiety. And so people who have had anxiety their whole lives and people who are anxious as adults tend to have had it as children. Very rarely have I met someone who has anxiety as an adult, and when I ask them, did you feel anxious as a child, they say no. They always mm -hmm. say yes. Um, although, interestingly, they don't always identify it as anxiety. They identify it as – so sometimes they'll say no, and I say, how about worry? Did you worry when mm -hmm. you were a child? And they'll say yes. So it's generally lifelong, and it's um, – you know, it's something that you become sadly somewhat accustomed to because it's the only reality that you've known is to see the world through this lens. Whereas a different personality type who isn't prone to anxiety seems to have more of an off button in their mm -hmm. brain, right? A, a thought might take hold, but they're able to turn it off. And, you know, I, I see that like there's, incredible gifts with anxiety that's pretty much my whole platform around anxiety is that it is here to teach us that it is a messenger and that's where it's counterculture because the culture says get rid of it as quickly as possible take a pill um you know push it away and anything to get rid of it right understandably it's incredibly uncomfortable and we are wired biologically to push away anything uncomfortable emotionally, physically, spiritually. So in my paradigm, I say, yes, it's incredibly uncomfortable and it's here to teach us something. Anxiety comes bearing gifts and messages. messages. And if we listen closely enough and we're able to um, move enough of the shame around it out of the way, we can start to glean those gifts. Mm. What was your path to that understanding of anxiety? Like, I know that you've struggled with anxiety in your life. So did you always have a sense of it having some sort of invitation or gift within it? Or was that a long path to discovering that? That's a great question. I think for some reason, I did always have a sense that there was a gift in it, probably partially because I was raised by two therapists. So I was in the realm from the time I was born of turning inward and becoming curious about one's inner world. And I always loved that. Um, I think even like the, the dream work, quote unquote, that I did when I was a kid, you know, just sharing my dreams with my mom and having, having an arena, having a platform um, someone who was interested enough to ask, what did you dream, started to orient me towards my inner world, that my inner world mattered, that what came from my unconscious, which is what dreams are, um, mattered. 
And so there was some, I'm just thinking about this just now, actually, that I think that that relationship to my dreams really did set the stage or plant the seeds for um, that mindset of curiosity mm-hmm. and the respect for my inner world, for what, what is erupting here. Um, and I was, I was always very curious, even going through high school, I always wanted to know what the personal element was. If we were reading a work of fiction and we were supposed to analyze it, I wanted to know how did this affect each person? What, what does it matter if we're not asking those questions of, of self-inquiry? Um, so that was, that was always in me. When I had my first panic attack when I was 21, um, and I didn't know what it was, which is shocking given that I was raised by two <laughs> therapists, but I, I had no idea. It just goes to up- show how completely horrible it is to experience, like that, that you probably thought there was something physically very wrong with you, right? Oh, yes. I ended up in the ER. Um, you know, I, I was driving. I pulled over. I, my heart was racing. I mean, I was absolutely petrified. I had no idea what was happening in my body. I had no idea that it was a panic attack. Um, went to the ER, got all checked out. Of course, I was totally fine. And still, the doc, no one said you just had a panic attack. Um, and then I went home. I told my parents, still nobody said you just had a panic attack. I had wow. no idea what had just happened. And I mean, for such a defining moment in my life, it took me, I don't know when, months for someone, for somehow I figured out, oh my goodness, that was a panic attack. Um, and it happened when I was talking about a dream about my experience that I had had a very traumatic experience that I had had the year before in Brazil. And none of that seemed like a coincidence to me. So you see my mindset was already oriented. I, I put all those pieces together to say what was happening in my unconscious in that moment that caused that level of terror that I went into a panic. Mm. And that really, that was the ball that got, you know, um, years of, of struggling with anxiety rolling and really having no idea how to work with it how to approach it. Um, until I started to see a, a absolutely brilliant therapist in my later twenties and he was instrumental um, he was also very steep in the language of the unconscious. I had also gone to graduate school in those, um, in those years. So from 23 to 25, I was in graduate school in a program that focused on Jungian psychology. So again, I was steeped in the inner world. And every time I had a new symptom, I would, I would just get intensely curious as much as I was suffering because I was in hell. I mean, I, I know anxiety inside and out and I was in hell and, um, and I had a new symptom arise while I was at graduate school. It was a, it was a distance program. So we would go once a month and I was there for the weekend and I was eating and my throat closed Mm. anxiety symptom. I didn't know at the time and I panicked because I thought I was going to choke and I could not take another bite of food. I was so terrified that I was going to choke. So I was probably 24 at that point. So I'd had that first panic at 21 and then 24, the second one hit. 
Both of them happened in February, and that's always been interesting to me. So I was always pulling together, you know, while I was suffering, at the same time, some part of me was pulled back in that witness mode of going, oh, my God, this is so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> like, look at this piece and look at this piece and what is it about February? And and I still don't really know. February is is has still continued to be more of a challenging month for me than other months of the year. There is something about February. Um, but to me, it's more about asking the questions than even arriving at the answers. That anxiety invites us to become curious and ask questions. And the ego waits for the answer, thinks that we're going to arrive at some magical answer that will then clear everything up. And the soul doesn't work that way. It's just, it's much more mysterious and nuanced and multi-layered than that. It's so interesting that um, you, I had never heard you talk about that experience of your throat closing up yes. because mm-hmm. I've always had a lot of anxiety about my throat closing up. <laughs> oh. That's been like a trigger for my anxiety is like, I'm going to have an allergic reaction or I'm going to, yes. something's going to happen and my throat's going to close up and I'm not going to be able to breathe. Um, and I just never knew that you had an experience related to that as well. I'm curious if you, like, is there something about the throat that anxiety lives I, there or shows I, I up there? I think there really is because I see it a lot in my mm. clients. And I think it's, um, first of all, it's our, it's our airway. Yeah, the right? breath. It's the breath. It's our voice. So if we want to go into metaphor, it's um, we're so vulnerable. Like you just touch your throat lightly and you feel like you're being choked. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's I think it's largely about control because I think when we have that fear of not being able to breathe, it's really about being out of control. Yeah. Um, and the throat carries a lot of energy around control. So those of us who are more more sensitive more prone towards anxiety because of the sensitivity. Um, And of course, from an evolutionary perspective, I think it's important to say that we, in some other eras in tribal living, we were highly valued in the culture because we were the centuries. We were the ones that were hypervigilant. We were the ones that were keeping everybody safe. Keeping the sensitive walking. people? The sensitive people mm-hmm. because we would notice the slightest changes in the environment. We were the trackers. We were constantly tracking. Our job was to keep everybody safe. And so we still have that evolutionary gene or you know, propensity, whatever we want to call it, but we don't have the same place to use it. We don't, we don't know where that need is supposed to go. And so this thing in our, in our, in our evolution as humans that was so, I, I imagine, I mean, I'm sort of making some of that up, but I imagine that the people that were keeping everyone safe were pretty well respected because this is survival, right? And so since we don't live out in the wild anymore and we don't use our sensitivity toward that end, we, we, we haven't quite evolved to know where do we put it? Where does this gift, right? Where is it allowed to shine in the modern world? Because if we're sitting in our daily life looking for danger, which is what anxiety wants us to do, looks for danger everywhere. 
And we're not actually finding it because we're not actually in danger anymore. Whereas when we were living in the outback, like you actually are in, you know, rattlesnakes and there's all kinds of things, <laughs> and, you know, and, and opposing tribes and who knows, tigers and all kinds of things. There's a lot of physical danger, but we don't live that life anymore. And so it's, it's, it's asking ourselves to evolve this, um, this quality so that we can once again embrace it as the gift that it is. So, you know, when it comes to something like choking um, or, or breath or swallowing, I don't know, it's just, it's so biological, it's so primal. And our minds are looking for that place of where's their danger. Mm. And so it has to land somewhere to land on something. And it, you know, quite often it does land on the throat. I have clients who are terrified of throwing up and I get it I hate throw it's that feeling of losing Choking. control you can't and you can't breathe for a second yeah this thing is taking over you and it's so interesting because you and I have also talked about having trouble with deep breaths yes and that's like the first thing people tell you when you're <laughs> not calm is like just take some deep breaths and like I I woke up this morning I don't even know why out of breath Mm. like I woke up feeling like I couldn't get a full deep breath and that's just something that comes up for me and so when I try to sit so when I am like really anxious and I try to take deep breaths like that doesn't always go (laughs) doesn't go well and then it just perpetuates like an inner cycle of shame or like oh my goodness what's wrong with me I can't even do the most simple tool that everyone tells you to do when you're anxious like you have one job in life and that's to breathe like one basic (laughs) survival job (laughs) you just can't really do it that well sometimes yeah and then of course if I'm distracted and I'm having fun and I'm like whatever I'm breathing fine but if someone tells me to sit down and think about how I'm breathing I'm like gasping for air yes and focus on it right right I, I also think it's interesting what you were just saying about um sensitive people not necessarily knowing what to do with their sensitivity now. And Mm -hmm. particularly because you brought up a really good point in your recent article for Elephant Journal, which I'll link to. Um, You wrote about how basically, in some ways, we're really being called to be more vulnerable at this moment in time in this world than we've ever been. For people who are privileged enough that their basic survival needs are met, which is not everyone. But for those who who have that basic security, you know, Brene Brown with all of her work on vulnerability, Mm -hmm. we're being called to access that in a new way and then also kind of figure out the balance of like, yeah, you're not safe everywhere and with everyone, but also being sensitive and vulnerable can be really good things. So I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit more. Yes. And it's, it's such an interesting idea. And I love when things rise in the collective unconscious and the collective consciousness. So Brené Brown has really brought this idea of shame and vulnerability to the forefront and such, you know, amazing work that she's done and she's doing. And so we look at, um, what are we being asked to do when there's when there's so much anxiety what is and so much nationwide anxiety and global anxiety that there must be some invitation it's not by accident it's not to torture us it's not that we're just all majorly screwing up as humans it's that there's something we're being asked 
to do. We're being asked to soften some of this armor. We don't have to be as protected as we've been. And it, it, it hasn't always been safe to be, I mean, not only physically safe, like we live in a much safer world overall. Um, again, not everybody, but overall, our world is, is, our, is in a positive trajectory in terms of health and safety. Like we're not worried about being wiped out by the plague or, you know, um, there's not like an inquisition, at least not in any kind of obvious way. Um, and again, not across the board because right. some people really do suffer right. under, under tyranny. But, um, you know, let, let's, let's talk about this segment of the community that we're addressing. Um, yes, our basic needs are met. We are basically physically safe. What is being asked on the emotional, spiritual level? It's to soften these barriers, this armor that we've, we've had to have um, throughout history. It hasn't been safe to be emotionally vulnerable. But with the right people now, and again, like you said, not with everybody. It's not that we're just going to go start burying our souls at right and left, but it's with the safe people in our lives, we're being asked to open our hearts, to soften our hearts. And we're on this threshold of something new. We haven't seen that modeled really anywhere. We didn't see it modeled growing up. It's not what our parents did. They had no idea. They weren't being really asked to do that, I don't think. Um, so they didn't have those skills. They, it wasn't modeled. We're, we don't see it in the media, very rarely do we see people being emotionally vulnerable. So we, we're being asked to step into this new skill that we really have no idea how to do, but we're, we're learning it together. We're learning it. I mean, one of the beauties of the internet is that we get to see, um, we have access to so much information, so many teachings of how do people do this and what does it actually look like? Um, and so, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, it totally does. And I love the point that you make about the fact that this is so new and we're so new to it. And we really have to be kind to ourselves as we figure it out and be kind to previous generations who didn't know how to yes. do it because no one taught them and that wasn't really allowed or accepted or safe. So yeah, I, I just thought that was That's a really right. good point that you made. And I just wanted to touch on it because part of you know, like doing a podcast and talking about anxiety and talking about being afraid of my throat closing up or whatever is like yes, being is vulnerable. vulnerable, you know? Um, That's right. And part of just being, I think just when you are honest about being anxious in general with anyone, even with yourself, I feel like it's really vulnerable because it is so, being anxious is seen as so, I think, unattractive. <laughs> Yes, and weak, and, and weak. what's wrong with you, and can't you just get with the program and go with the flow, and why do you have to get everything get to you, and you're too sensitive, and, and there's all kinds of messages about anxiety. We don't, absolutely do not see it culturally as a gift and as evidence of immense sensitivity and compassion and empathy and conscientiousness and integrity and these are the qualities of my clients and my my course members and every anxious person that i know yeah right it's like these are like stellar human beings that have so much to offer yet the shame around the anxiety prevents them from 
turning toward it and embracing it and mining the gems of it. Yeah. And kind of dancing with it, right? Like yes. accepting it as a as part of you and then working yes. with it rather than just trying to run from it or push it away. Yes. Because it yes. is, like you said, it's a lot of good qualities in overdrive. <laughs> like working way harder than they have to. That's right. And when we turn toward it and accept it, it doesn't mean accepting being living with anxiety every day of your life. Right. Right. That's not what it means to just accept, oh, I'm just an anxious person. It means embracing it as part of you, but then learning to work with it, right? So that, I mean, I don't live in anxiety anymore. I haven't lived in anxiety in a really, really long time. That doesn't mean anxiety doesn't grab me from time to time. That doesn't mean I haven't been pulled under in the past couple of years by different events, health anxiety, my kids' health, whatever it is. Um, but I come back online really quickly, right? So I can get pulled under, I can, all that fear can take over, but I have my practices, I have my, um, just my, 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 the strength of my inner self that's, that's solid at this point. You know, I mean, I say that and like if something truly catastrophic happened, I mean, but that's a different story. Anxiety isn't really about in response to something catastrophic. Right. It's in response to the what ifs. Right. Right. And so as you work with anxiety and embrace it, you have a much better chance of not being pulled under by it. It's that paradox. If you want to, you want to dance with it so that ultimately, you know, you are in the lead. You mm -hmm. are the lead dance partner, right. not the anxiety. And I really want to hear more about like the, that, the positive aspects of kind of embracing and the actions that people can take and like actions that you take. Um, but I wanted to touch on a little bit first intrusive thoughts, because mm -hmm. I think that intrusive thoughts are really not talked about that much. They're um, really not. Like I don't hear anyone talking about them except you <laughs> and you write about them on your blog. Um, and it seems like pretty much all of your clients have them. Yes. <laughs> and I think about them almost like in Harry Potter, how no one wants to say Voldemort's name because they're all so afraid of him. So they call him he who must not be named. <laughs> and then it's like, because it's their fear of even speaking his name that makes them even more afraid. And I feel like intrusive thoughts are really similar. It's like, we don't even want to speak their name because we're so yes. disturbed by them. And we yes. think it means there's something seriously wrong with us. Yes. Um, but then by not speaking them, they gain so much mm -hmm. power. So yeah, just for someone who either isn't familiar with them or has never shared with anyone and like maybe doesn't have a name for them, could you just mm -hmm. talk a little bit about what intrusive thoughts are? So an intrusive thought is a repetitive or incessant um, thought that you don't want. So it's a thought that brings a lot of discomfort and um, it, it comes unbidden. You can't, you can't seem to make it go away. It just keeps coming. Um, and it's intrusive. So it intrudes upon your mental state, intrudes upon your well-being. And they come as if they are the truth. 
So they don't come like, oh, maybe this or that. It's like, <laughs> you know, common intrusive thoughts. And these are so fascinating to me on an archetypal level. Like what is, what is, because I see everything in terms of metaphor. What is the collective metaphor um, in the most common intrusive thoughts of what if I'm gay? Um, what if I have a terminal illness? Um, what if I hurt a child? What if I harm anybody? What if I, what if I have harmed someone and I don't remember? Mm. Um, what if I have an affair? What if I cheat? Um, and, and, and the flip of that is what if I did cheat and I don't remember? And that's often related to, um, alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the one that's really present in the culture right now is what if I, and my life. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I, that actually just kind of, I had kind of forgotten that when I was, I think in middle school, my, I had an intrusive thought of what if I hurt myself? What if I cut myself? Mm. Um, like I didn't want to, but I had that intrusive thought. I would walk past like if I saw razors in the shower, walking mm. past knives, I got this Yes. Total fear reaction. Yes. And so the, the, the main, for someone new listening to this, who is new to the conversation about intrusive thoughts, um, the main piece to know is that they are not true. Right. And they come again from people who are anxious. Yes. But incredibly sensitive and conscientious. And would never, ever, ever act on one of these thoughts. I've never, ever once seen that happen. Um, now, the, the confusing one is what if I'm gay? Because, you know, we, we can't, there's no, like, blood test. There's, and then there's all this conversation in the culture around sexuality now. And, and so much of that is incredibly positive. Like, we're just, like, blowing open the boundaries and definitions. But it's also really confusing and for someone prone to anxiety who, who um, is still growing into themselves in their 20s, like this is your audience, right, um, where just by virtue of our age, we're, we're just, we just don't have a certain level of maturity that comes later, um, we're incredibly susceptible to what we read, what we hear. And so the question is always around what if I'm gay? Well, I don't think I am choosing my, and it's never around, it's not such a difficult conversation to have because it's not, these are not people who are homophobic in any way. Right. Like they might even not be saying it in terms of that's a bad thing, but maybe they're in a relationship and they're afraid that means, oh, well, that means I have to leave my partner. It means I have to leave my partner. And it comes out in the reverse. It comes out for people in same-sex relationships who are right. saying, what if I'm straight? Right. So it's not about sexuality. It's more it's about different. certainty and wanting yes. concrete answers. That's right. It's about wanting a guarantee Yeah. that this is who I'm choosing now, but will I always choose this person? You know, because we hear the stories in the media, the women in their 40s, and they suddenly come out and they yeah. leave their husbands. and It's like, ah, you know, it's incredibly anxiety provoking. And that's what I mean about that well of self is that the waters aren't quite full enough yet to say, well, that's their story. It's not mine. And it's one of the hallmarks of the 
sensitive, anxious person is to take on other people's stories. Um, but being that sensitive and empathic, it's part of the gift, but it's, it's a challenge until you learn how to take in what you want to take in and keep out what you want to keep out. And so to hear a story like that can activate that intrusive thought, which like you said, it really isn't about sexuality. It's about certainty, which at the core of all intrusive thoughts are really about certainty. Yeah. It's, it's the ego's attempt to gain some foothold. If I could just answer this one question and have a definite answer, I would feel safe inside. And it sounds like also this fear of our shadow selves or our shadow sides, yes. kind of, you know, in the case yes. of someone who might be afraid of hurting a child, say, you know, like they look out at the world and they see how many people hurt children and they just w worry mm -hmm. that that's lurking somewhere inside of them yes. too, right? Yes. And I really like to, that one is so, it's there's such a beautiful metaphor in there and a powerful metaphor when someone can get it. I just worked with somebody a couple of weeks ago around this. Um, and the question I like to ask them is how are you harming your own inner child? Mm. Right. So it's turning it on oneself in a compassionate way. Say, am I harming myself in any way? Well, by believing that thought is the first way by believing the thought that you could harm a child when you know, deep down that you would never do that. Right. That is one way that we harm ourselves is by letting ourselves believe these intrusive thoughts. But it's deeper than that. It's then, then opens a conversation about what am I telling myself about myself? How am I meeting my pain? How much self-judgment and shame come up for me on a daily basis? And then we start to move the energy. It doesn't get stuck on that one thought. You know, I mean, of course, the thought of that births so much of my later work is what if I'm not in love with my partner? Do yeah. I really love my partner? That's, that's the perseverating thought that leads people to my work more than any other one. Yeah. How do I know he or she is the one again, looking for certainty, right? What if this is a mistake? How do you know? And <laughs> all around us, we see couples, marriages falling apart, which brings me to a point I wanted to say earlier, which is when you're on the sensitive, anxious spectrum, I highly recommend limiting one's um, time on the internet <laughs> um, <laughs> and really considering taking breaks from social media, um, really being intentional about what you click on when you open up your computer and there's the Yahoo news page, considering not making that your home page, because these are ways that anxiety gets in really quickly. Um, and this is one area that we can control. We can control what we let into our inner field. We can control what images, um, we see. And, and, you know, this is a very difficult conversation to have for people in your generation because it's the whole world. Yeah. Right. It's the whole universe is and for, contained in our screens. For some of us, it's part of our jobs. <laughs> like yes. a lot of us get hired somewhere and it's like oh good you're you're young you can do all of the social media stuff you know if you're working like, yes <laughs> at a small company or a nonprofit or whatever um and so right. like yeah you kind of oftentimes have to engage well I mean there are good things about it too there but are good things. but it is just the social comparison that 
that is already so easy for anxious people to yes. get hooked by. It's, yes. I mean, even people who aren't super anxious or who, or who aren't super insecure or whatever, don't feel very good when they spend a ton of time on social media. Like, no. so. No. And that's where that inner adult comes in that I talk about that is able to set those boundaries. I'm not, I'm not a fan of, um, huge drastic moves and black and white behaviors and saying no social media, no internet. That's not realistic for our day and age for most people. But it's about having that inner wisdom, that inner adult, that inner parent that can say, that can set limits, right? And say, I can go on to Facebook for 10 minutes a day, you know? And if you have to go on for your job, you go on for your job, but then you get off. Yeah. You know, and I can choose what articles I click on and I can choose what news stories I listen to. And that's part of taking care of our inner selves. When we are sensitive people, we absorb everything. And it's, it's just too much. It's too much to take on. I remember a conversation you and I had maybe a year ago about this globalization of information. Like we, there's, we know of the storm that happened in Sri Lanka, you know, like, we know two minutes ago, like <laughs> two minutes ago, yeah. you know, the 12 Thai boys that were trapped in, it's like the whole world. And there's something beautiful about that, right? That we all get to pray and, and put in our thoughts and, you know, send money. And that's amazing. And we have to place limits yeah. for Be- our well-being. Because yeah, you can't, you can't do something about every single thing yes. that you see. <laughs> That's it's right. so, it's like, what do you do with it? I think it often does become anxiety, even if it's not yes. direct. It's like you're taking all of it in and then where does that go? That's right. That's right. And unless you have channels for all of that, someplace for it to go, which nobody can possibly have, you can't, like you said, you can't do something about every tragedy that you see, that you read about. And so it's it's being very mindful about what you let in and maybe it's one or two stories that you follow that you can imagine sending ten dollars or whatever something that helps with that helplessness right so that it doesn't all just sit and turn into anxiety and that that idea of like that inner parent um yes that also reminds me of something else you said in that recent article about how anxiety kind of invites us to become the parent that we need to be for ourselves. That's right. And people often say to me, I have no inner adult. I have no inner parent. And I say, do you have a pet? Do you have a friend? Do you have anyone, any being in your life that you take care of? with compassion. If a friend comes to you crying, do you say, oh, get over it. You're so stupid for crying. You would never say that in a million years. And you probably wouldn't even be thinking it because we are infinitely more compassionate to others than we are to our own selves. And that's one of the biggest shifts that people um, start to make as they start to recognize the ways that they are not being kind to themselves, right? It's really becoming your own best friend and learning to meet those places of pain and fear and jealousy and disappointment and the, the whole range of human emotions with a different mindset, not the mindset of, oh my God, what's wrong with you, right? Get over it. You shouldn't be feeling this. You shouldn't be feeling jealous. You shouldn't be feeling disappointed. 
and instead just making room. And when we do that, a lot of anxiety starts to dissipate. Not all of it and not all at once. And it's a very slow process. This is not a quick fix approach, right? It's the culture that wants the quick fix approach. And so then we expect a quick fix approach. This is not quick fix. This is developing a a relationship to these different parts of ourselves, getting into relationship with them instead of being fused with them. Yeah, and it is that mixture of nurturing and disciplined. Like it's it's both the having compassion for yourself, accepting what you're feeling or where you are, and then also having the the voice in your head that says like, okay, it's time to put the phone down now. Yes. <laughs> like it's both of that at the same yes. time. Yes, exactly. And it's it's the inner characters that I call the inner mother and the inner father. And it's not about men and women. Um, it's just archetypal energies of the inner masculine is the one that can set those boundaries, that can cut ties, that can say, okay, enough. Right? We've been crying for an hour. And <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think it's enough. That's what I talk about in my site as indulgent crying, um, where it's actually not productive anymore because – Sometimes the crying is shame-based, and so if the crying is coming from that place of what's wrong with me and crying about how much anxiety you have, it's it's not fruitful, mm. right? And so then that inner parent, that inner father has to come in and say, okay, wait a minute, this is not serving us. And these are all concepts until you, until you start to practice them, Um and my work with anxiety is very action-based. It's very practice-based. It's saying, yes, here's, here's how it works. Now go and practice. Now journal with these different parts of you or relate to these different parts of you out loud. But somehow get out of your head, either on paper or out loud, and have a dialogue with these different parts of you that are emerging. Yeah, and I, so we've touched on some things, but if, you know, someone who is sitting in anxiety right now, like what, what would be a few kind of simple actions that you would recommend to, to and again, like keeping in mind that it's a long process and yes. a lot of it is about having patience with yourself. Like I've yes. been anxious my whole life to some degree, mm-hmm. but it's definitely gotten better, but it's, mm-hmm. it takes a long time. So like with patience and gentleness in mind, what are some actions that you think are, um, are helpful? So first take a really deep breath. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was good. <laughs> so, so there's, there's two ways that I approach. There's the on the spot techniques or tools for if you're in it right now, what can you do in this moment? But what I'm much more interested in is the, the building of the reservoir, the work, the deep work. Um, and there's a lot of on the spot techniques, like getting into your body, going for a walk, putting on some music and dancing. Like I said, in the beginning, anxiety is a head state, even though we do feel it in our bodies. It's really about being trapped in our heads. Ruminating. Yeah. ruminating, obsessing, worrying. So when we can come into our body in some way, sweep the floor, vacuum, go for a run, um, get into nature, anything that grounds us in the present moment can 
often take the edge off. And channel um, some of that energy out, right? Yeah, it's energy, right? You want to move it. You don't want it to be trapped. You want it to move through you. Um, but the deeper work that really heals the anxiety from, from the root um, is the journaling. It's, it's a pretty specific journaling practice that I teach of dialoguing with these different parts. It's, I mean, a lot of people have some version of it, but it's, it's parts work. It's working with, with, with these different characters that live inside of us, the fear character, the ego, the wounded self, whatever you want to call it. Some people name their inner characters. That's my, that's my judgmental part named, you know, Hannah or whatever. <laughs> um, and like, you know, oh, Hannah just arrived. And what that does is it allows you to see these parts of you as opposed to being fused with them. And when you're fused with them is when they take over. When you can see and witness them as different parts and it's people are like, aren't you telling me to be schizophrenic? <laughs> no, <laughs> we all have these states inside of us. All we're doing is naming what's already there. We're not creating something that's not there. We're naming something that's already there so that we can start to relate to it. Um, you know, um, mindfulness or meditation practice is extraordinarily helpful, even if it's five minutes a day of spending time witnessing what's happening inside your mind. We don't slow down enough. So I mean, at the core, and I say it in all my courses constantly, is we, in order to do any of this work, we have to be willing to slow down. We have to be willing to take time each day to turn inward. People say, I don't have the time. And I say, that's just absolutely not true. You know, you, you spend 10 minutes at least scrolling through your phone. What would happen if you took that 10 minutes and turned it to you in a nurturing way? And again, it's not about throwing your phone away. It's about recognizing that the actions that we take and what effect they have on us. So if we spend two hours surfing the internet, how do you feel after that versus spending an hour journaling and dialoguing and being with yourself, right? Taking an action that will nurture you and nourish you instead of deplete you and possibly activate more anxiety. So when we spend time in mindfulness, we are growing that witness self is what we're doing. That's the action that grows the muscle of being able to witness what's going on instead of immediately being fused with it because what happens with an intrusive thought it comes in and it's like lightning fast immediately the person hooks in oh my gosh because I had that thought it must mean it's true and so it's one of the things I see all the time just because you had a thought it doesn't mean it's true and even being able to say that to yourself that would be an in the moment mm -hmm. work with anxiety a thought comes in you name it oh that's an intrusive thought well I just learned that that's an intrusive thought, right? In the naming, you have created some space between you and it. So you have a much less chance, a much higher chance of not being taken down by it, right? Um, so the journaling, the mindfulness, or the meditation, having some kind of body-based practice, um, even if it's walking, but something that gets you into your body, not even if, it, walking is fantastic. I'm a huge fan of walking. Um, and again, noticing what happens when you walk while you're talking to a friend on your phone or listening to something on your phone versus when you just walk and you observe what's happening around you, neither choice being better or worse, just having that mindset of noticing what's happening inside. We don't do that in the culture. We are completely externally 
referenced and we are taught to be externally referenced. We're not taught. There's not a class in school called your inner world, <laughs> right? Or understanding your thoughts and feelings. Or this is your one hour of journaling every day. It's part of your curriculum like math and English and science, right? I mean, now there's things like mindfulness that's being brought into schools, which is fantastic. And yoga is fantastic. But still, we're not quite there in terms of allotting time as part of our daily expectation to turn inward and really get to know what am I thinking, what am I feeling. In fact, that's probably the other thing that, that when you asked me in the beginning, have I always been sort of curious about my symptoms? I started keeping a journal when I was six. So having that relationship to my inner world, um, it was a practice my whole life, like literally my entire life. So I was always processing. I was always asking questions so that when anxiety hit like a Mack truck, I was somewhat prepared to say, huh, okay, whoa, what's happening here? What are the messages? What do I need to learn? How is this an invitation to grow and to heal? Which anxiety always is. And for a lot of people, it is so hard to find silence and to find Mm. yeah that quiet space and all of that it's going to be it's probably going to be uncomfortable and even difficult for a while right like and just accepting and not judging that or thinking that there's anything wrong with the fact that maybe it doesn't feel great right away and it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you or that you'll never be able to sit to take a walk without your phone, you know, (laughs) like it will act, it is almost like a muscle and it's just something that you get used to the more that you practice, right? Absolutely. And in the beginning, if anxiety is very high, I don't recommend sitting. Mm -hmm. It's, it's way too much and it's way too much energy to contain by sitting. Right. Um, and so that would be the time to do a walking practice. Um, or put on some music and dance and just get some of that energy out and moving. And as you start to develop more of that relationship with your inner world, and by the way, you know, all of this goes a lot better with um, the guidance of a skilled therapist. Right. So it's, it's hard to do this alone. I do not believe we're meant to do life alone. Yeah. Huge yeah. fan of therapy. And it's hard to find really great ones, but they're absolutely out there. Um, a ton of them out there. And so if at all possible to find that guide um, and someone who can, can, can walk you through this and help point you in some directions and, you know, offer some wisdom and offer a lifeline when it gets scary. A couple of years ago when I first started, like you gave me some Pema Children books and, you know, I started mm-hmm. kind of really, I've always been interested in spirituality from the time I was a kid, but like after college graduation, when I really started to kind of dive in more, I didn't even realize how much I still had a really perfectionistic mindset and a really individualistic mindset. Mm. Like I thought I was, I didn't think I was stuck in that, but I realized looking back that I was like, it's all or nothing. I have to go meditate alone in a field for an hour by myself, (laughs) or I've failed and I may as well not try. Like I still had, 
you know, I didn't even want to download an app to help me meditate because I just thought like, you know, wow. I was just being so perfectionistic about it. Yes. Um, and of course, if you go into it with that mindset, nothing's going to shift. That's right. Exactly. And it's hard to see ourselves clearly, yeah. you know, and it's hard not that a therapist's job is to point out, you know, all of your blind spots. That would be a very brutal process. But, um, but when we get stuck and we're looking for reflection, it, it's incredibly helpful to have somebody there that knows us really well and that can guide us you know, through, this, through the territory that can be very tricky and very scary. Yeah, because a lot of it is ultimately, like you said, um, actually acknowledging and accepting discomfort and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Saying to yourself... I, there isn't a certain answer to this or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, can't, I don't know for sure what's going to happen. Yes. And, and yeah, we're not really meant to just be totally alone with that. Having that support is really helpful. Incredibly helpful. And it can really be a lifeline. Um, and then it brings up, you know, I think a, a deeply spiritual question about how to embrace uncertainty. Yeah. You know, and that's where, <clears throat> so we haven't even really talked to, but in my, in my model of, of working with anxiety, it's a very holistic model. And so I ask people to inquire, where am I, what, what is the message in this anxiety in my four realms of self? So physical, emotional, cognitive, and spiritual. And that when we are working in those four realms of self, we are moving toward wholeness. And that is the gift of anxiety that for many people, their journey toward wholeness and healing doesn't really begin until they are broken open by their anxiety. It becomes intolerable. The intrusive thoughts become intolerable. Um, The feeling of anxiety itself and their bodies become intolerable. And so it's like anxiety is holding out its hand and saying, come, come, to yourself, right? Come inward. It's, it, there's nothing inside that is going to bite you. Um, you're not going to discover some deep, dark secret about yourself. These are the fears that come up when people say, I don't want to turn inward. I'm too scared. A lot of resistance comes up. What if I don't like what I find? What if I realize I have to leave my partner? What if I realize I am an awful person? Those things don't happen because what happens is we come closer to ourselves and we, in doing so, we invite more self-compassion in, which creates more self-love. And we were, when we're in a state that expands our hearts, we are more expanded toward others as well. And so we shrink fear and we grow love. It's really helpful to hear you talk about having struggled with anxiety because it can feel like I'm never going to get to that <laughs> place. Yes. Um, and also, wh- the more you do kind of sit with yourself and notice what you're thinking and what you're doing, sometimes you do feel sad or regretful. It's not always pleasant to notice, <laughs> um, no. to really notice what you're doing. Yes. And when we say we have to be willing to feel the discomfort and that when you turn inward, you might find a lot of pain, you might find regret, but you might find a lot of grief. You might find sadness. 
And that's a scary place for people too, because we don't grow up, um, again, seeing how to be with sadness. How is that modeled? What does that look like? What does that mean to be with our sadness? If we start crying, doesn't mean we're never going to stop. It's just going to take over because that's how it felt when we were young, right? That the avalanche would come and the tear would just be this flood. I remember crying so hard when I was a kid that I couldn't breathe. There's the breathing again, but it was such huge crying. And I remember crying alone, you know? And so if we were held through our crying as kids, we wouldn't be afraid of the crying. But as a child, it feels like it's going to kill you. It doesn't, but it feels like it is. And so we grow up believing if I really start crying, I'm going to die. It's going to overwhelm me. I'm going to go crazy. I won't be able to stop. Um, and so it, it, this is now we're in the emotional realm, right? And, and looking at the beliefs that keep those tears at bay, that stop us from moving into our hearts. All the beliefs we have about big feelings need to be examined. Otherwise, the resistance comes up and it just says, uh-uh, too dangerous. It's not safe to feel your feelings. It's taken me a while to get comfortable with really thinking back to, like you said, thinking back to your younger self crying and feeling like it's never going to stop and being alone. And I have found recently how healing it is to actually to go back to that moment and talk to yourself (laughs) in that integrative way of, um, like it took me a while to be okay with trying that. (laughs) It felt, I, I was uncomfortable with it for a long time, but there is something really healing about like saying, whether it's through journaling or with a therapist, traveling back and giving your younger self the words and the actions that you feel like you really needed. Yes. It's deeply healing work and it takes tremendous courage to do it. It's not like, Oh, I heard this podcast. Now I can go. Do yeah. It. We have, <laughs> yeah. You know, we have to, we can plant those seeds, but there are often, and for some people it is that for some people it's wow. I never thought about journaling before like that or dialoguing with these parts and they just take to it and they run with it and they're great. It's like this, you know, long lost tool that they wish they had had their whole lives, but they just, they, they grab on quickly. But for most people, it's not that way. There's a lot of resistance. Um, and resistance ice is code for fear. Um, but there is also sometimes wisdom in resistance. We, We may not be ready. We may not have the support systems in place to do that deep inner work and to open up that pain that's been sealed over for 15, 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah, because that, I was going to say that that the support is a really important piece of it. Having a therapist or like a supportive community. um, Yes. Preferably someone who is a professional. (laughs) um, Yes. Helping you with that is really important. Absolutely. I wonder, so if you could... If you were in the car with your 21-year-old self when you were having the panic attack or maybe Mm. after you had come home from the ER, Mm. um, what would you say now? (laughs) That is such a great question. Um, I would get on the bed with her because I went home to my childhood house and I would get on the bed 
and I would hold her first for a really long time. And I would say that must have been so scary. And I am with you. I'm sorry I wasn't there in that moment, but I am with you now. And when you think about it, what, what comes to mind? And I would hold her while she cried, and I would encourage her to release that energy in some way, whatever that buildup was. And probably not in that moment, but in some later moment, I would say, tell me about that dream that you were sharing when that happened. Let's, let's dive into that gently together. I'm here and I'm with you, but there's probably a lot of information there that needs your attention and let's do that together. But you know what's interesting is that had I been there, had someone said that to me, and had I not spent the next many years struggling through panic attacks and anxiety, I wouldn't be doing the work I'm doing. So, you know, as nice as that would have been to have someone just kind of nip it in the bud and, and, you know, give me words and language for that and help me through that journey at 21 instead of at 28, um, all those intervening years were, were just critical to me um, understanding anxiety um, in such a deep visceral, visceral way that has allowed me to parent my kids, to work with my clients, to be a good friend to my friends when their anxiety arises. Um, and this is part of what I mean of the gift of anxiety. It's like, yes, we want it to go away. And yes, wouldn't it have been nice if I had been handled and it had been addressed earlier. But, you know, I truly believe that our lives unfold exactly as they need to unfold. Um, so that we can become the people that we need to become so that we can um, bring our full selves into the world in some way, and I don't mean necessarily in a, in a big public way, because I think our egos can get caught in that and our anxious minds can latch on. I don't know what my calling is, and I don't know. I just mean, you know, being more present with ourselves is a gift to the whole world. Because by being present with ourselves, you'll be present with the people in your immediate life. Right? You will be present with the earth underneath your feet. Right? And that's what it is to bring your full self to the world. And there's a lot of trust in all of that. (laughs) Yes, a lot of trust in all of that. And to me, again, that's where the spiritual component comes in, which is, you know, very tricky for people. Again, like there's a lot of baggage and history and stuff to work through about spirituality, about religion, um, but to me, without some anchor in something bigger than ourselves, um, there's only so far we can go with healing our anxiety because yeah. embedded in the anxiety itself is the invitation to connect to something bigger and to have some sense of trust that it's being handled in some way that I cannot see or understand. I think that is a really good topic for another episode. Yeah. <laughs> Trust. <laughs> yes. I want to ask you one more question. 
Sure. It's easy to think at some point I will have everything figured out and I won't have anything left to learn or, you know, I'll just have it all together. Yes. Um, I'm wondering, is there something that you are learning or growing into right now? <laughs> um, well, gosh, I mean, being, being a wife and being a parent are continual mirrors for growth. Um, I would say, you know, my latest, my latest mirror, um, into myself came through a dream where I was in line and I sometimes wear a necklace around my neck. It's a diamond around a gold chain and it was, it's an heirloom, um, it was passed down from my great grandmother and the chain breaks in the dream and that I'm standing next to water and the diamond almost falls into the water, but I catch it. I think I catch the chain. And the next thing I know is I'm eating crushed diamonds. There's, I'm pulling these slivers of diamonds out of my mouth and, um, I don't, it's not a good taste. It's like, it's like if you eat like an eggshell by accident, you're like, ugh, like that's not a texture you want in your mouth. <laughs> um, and I woke up from the dream and I really, it was, it was a dream that I wanted to work with. Um, and by working with, I mean, and that's a whole other conversation. It's about <laughs> dream work as a window into our, our unconscious. Um, but it really just means being with it in some creative way. And I wrote it as a poem. I didn't write it in sentences. Um, and I got immediately that the chain I was break, I was standing in line. And so psyche likes to play on words. Um, and so I got, it's my ancestral line. There's something in my ancestral line and the chain broke. And again, it's, I'm breaking a, I'm breaking an intergenerational pattern. Um, and the clue for me was that this diamond had been passed down through the generations. And so I was asking, what, what is in my mouth? What is ugh, like that? This is not a diamond I want in my mouth all crushed up, these slivers. Um, and I got that there's this layer of some of the subtle way. It gets more and more subtle as you get older. Okay? It's not so obvious to see um, our shadow as it is when we're younger. At least that's been my experience. Um, it's like we do the broad sweep and we heal like these big layers and then we get into our forties and it's just, it's just more subtle how our wounds and how our negative habits and patterns show up. And so I got that I've inherited this intense way of controlling. Um, and it's intense, but it's subtle. So it's not like anyone looking in from the outside would say you're being so controlling, but um, but I really saw it in a specific area in my marriage and, um, about wanting to control my husband's path. And I mean, he's at a real crossroads with his career. Um, and it was just, when I got it, it was just like that amazing whole body aha feeling that comes when you're doing dream work and you just land, you land on this truth that your psyche is trying to deliver. Um, much like working with anxiety and intrusive thoughts, when we're looking at it in terms of the metaphor. So we're looking at dreams with the metaphor and, um, you know, and I just, I bow down in those moments. I'm so grateful. I bow down to psyche. I bow down to my own self for 
being willing to to continually continually look at these areas where I'm still stuck or I'm still in control mindset. Um, and when it hit, it was just like, I'm, it's to me, it's exhilarating to see my stuck places <laughs> um, and things that I wasn't aware of. And it's exhilarating when it comes from my own, my own being. It's not someone from the outside saying, hey, you're doing this, you're doing that. It's like we're, we're being guided by this, um, this guiding principle of our self with a capital S that, that Jung refers to, our unconscious, our psyche, that there is this guide at all times, right, that we are never alone because there's this element inside that is always guiding us toward wholeness. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's really powerful. The element that really sticks out to me is your curiosity, which you Mm -hmm. talked about from a really young age. You you see it in artists and people who really bring, who really, um, people who create are curious, right? Yes, yes. And so it's really nice to hear that your, your reaction to noticing, oh, I'm being controlling about this, wasn't to just shut down, shame yourself, and maybe just actually get even more controlling and angrier because mm-hmm. you can't even bear to look at it your, mm-hmm. re- your response was curiosity and then out of that you can actually create a new way of being or dealing with it yes exactly mm-hmm. and creating a new pattern in the ancestral line right it's yeah. like i'm in line and and the chain is is broken and to me that's a very positive okay good i'm being invited to break this chain and set into motion a new, a new model for my kids, right? A new model of, of the stage of our marriage. Um, but yes, it is the curiosity that's so key. And the, the excitement to growth, it's like it's the two mindsets that Carol Dwork um, talks about in her book, Mind Shift, um, the fixed mindset or the growth mindset. And that we actually get to choose our mindset. It's not something we may be, have a propensity towards one or the other, um, we might we be have a, raised with one or the other, right? Like pe- parents yes. and teachers raising yes. us with one or the other. With a fixed mindset, which is the dominant mindset of like, this is, who, this is your set of skills. These are your gifts. These are your strengths. These are your, your traits. Yeah. And they're fixed. That's it. Set in stone. No point in doing anything about it. Whereas the growth mindset says, well, I mean, I have this given set of characteristics and traits and wiring, but what can I do with it? And how can I keep growing with it? And for me, like there's nothing more exciting than, than growing my own and obviously other people's because that's the work I do. It's like, you know, I help people along that path of growing. Yeah. And there's a lot of science out there now um, confirming what like Buddhists have known for thousands of years that, <laughs> that, that neuroplasticity, our brains yes. do change and continue to change over our lifetimes and you can create new patterns and yes it's not all fixed so there is hope (laughs) and that's so reassuring for the anxious mind because the Mm -hmm. anxious mind wants to say this is who I am this is who I've always been I'll never change but the neuroplasticity model says oh this is who you've always been but it doesn't mean this is who you'll always have to be we have incredible room for change and that's where I think we can actually derive not fear, but hope or comfort or just energy from uncertainty 
and unfixedness because if we're anxious, we Mm. tend to see uncertainty means it's going to be bad, but actually uncertainty could mean that it's going to be good. (laughs) (laughs) The anxious brain doesn't think that way. We're glass half empty people. So that is part of the rewiring is rewiring ourselves toward exactly that looking out for the possibility of good. Yeah. Right. So, oh my gosh, am I, am I with the right one? Do I love them enough? Really is, are we going to get divorced? And I say that to my clients all the time. How about the big unknown is you're going to stay married for the next 70 years because that's a very real possibility. Yeah. Right. And if we're going to attach onto some outcome, which our minds like to do, I mean, the true place of surrender is we have no idea what's going to happen in the next 60 years. Right. Yeah. We can't possibly know. But our minds like to have little footholds into things. So it's like if we're going to attach onto one story or another, do we want to attach onto the story of divorce and doom and gloom or the story of, wow, we could grow. And by the way, the mindset of growth is such an essential one when it comes to relationships that we don't start out knowing anything about each other and that it takes decades to learn. But when we're in that mindset of growth, we allow our marriage to grow, we allow ourselves to grow with each other and together, right? And so we can we can latch on to that, that story of, hey, we're just gonna keep growing together for as long as we can. And we can hold out that vision of, you know, I mean, I have a vision, Dave and I are like 95 and we're in this house and we're still healthy and we have like great grandchildren around us. And, you know, <laughs> like, that's a lovely image in my mind, right? And to me, a sign of my own growth because I could easily go to a catastrophic. Yeah. Right? Or just be so too afraid to even hope for that. Yes. Too afraid you're going to jinx it by even thinking about it. That's right. That's one of ego's favorite tactics. It's like, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're putting all your eggs in one basket or it's too good to be true. And that's that upper limit ceiling that Gay Hendricks talks about. We have a hard time hanging out in that place of goodness. Again, there's an evolutionary invitation there to grow beyond where we've been as a species. Um, and again, I always feel like I have to say, as I think you do, like we're talking about a very privileged part right. of the sector yes. of our world. <laughs> um, but given that's, that's where the conversation is, that we are in being invited to expand our capacity for goodness. Right? for softness, for vulnerability, for love. We don't know anything, but for all we know, we're headed in the right direction. For all we know, we get to embrace the goodness in our lives, regardless of what happens. And I mean, we, you know, this practice of gratitude, which is a yeah. whole other conversation, but an amazing practice for the anxious brain. Talk about, again, what are the tools, um, the deep the deep dive tools, one of them is developing a gratitude practice that helps us orient towards what's working instead of what's not working. The anxious mind is always looking for what's not yeah. working, what's missing in ourselves and others and our environment, all of it. And so it's a, pra- it's a rewiring to proactively focus on what is working. For me, sometimes I think anxiety is what I feel when I'm afraid to just feel happy. I'm afraid to just feel mm-hmm. content. I'm afraid to just feel grateful because I'm afraid of how fragile that could, yes. that might be. Yes. Right. Anxiety is a placeholder for a lot of feelings. Yeah. And so a placeholder for our grief and our fear and um, our vulnerability, but also for our joy. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly right. It's scary to let ourselves feel grateful 
feel in joy because ego immediately comes in and says, well, what if it ends? What if it's taken away? Right, because that joy and that grief really do go hand in hand. You feel grief because there was joy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Mm, Thank you. Very excited for you to share this with me. Yeah, I'm really, really excited to share it. And I hope that we can have we can record another conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I look forward to it. And before we hang up, where can people find you and your work? Um, so my website is conscious-transitions.com. Um, I'm on YouTube. I just started making more YouTube videos again. It's been a long time. <laughs> and um and then I have a book coming out in next year. I think I mentioned at the beginning, it's The Wisdom of Anxiety. Um, and it's May or June 2019, published by Sounds True. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Victoria. If you like the episode, I hope that you'll share it and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Um, it helps people to find the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join me next time.